And I think we'll see what this is talking about as we read it. So would somebody read 1 to 8? So behold, in those days, and at that time, I restored the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem. I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Then I will enter into judgment with them, but there on behalf of my people and my inheritance, inheritance Israel. Whom they have scattered among the nations and have divided by my land. They have also cast lots for my people, traded a boy for a herd, and so a girl for wine that they may drink. Moreover, order you to me, Montyre, Sudden, and all the regions of the Philistines. Are you bringing me a recompense? But if you do recompense me swiftly and speedily, I will return your recompense on your head. Since you have taken my silver, my gold, brought my precious treasures to your temples, and sold the sons of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks in order to remove them far from their territory. Behold, I am going to arouse them from the place where you have sold them and return your recompense on your head. Also, I will sell your sons. And he died into the hands of Ju- into the hand of the sons of Judah, and they were sold into the Sami to a distant nation that they were spoken. Okay. So, in the time when he blesses his people, restores Judah and Jerusalem, what else does he do? gathers the nations for judgment. Now why? Well, we saw them that we talked about selling them as slaves. Yes. Here are the enemies of God's people that receive worse than the locust plot now. When God blesses his people, he deals with their enemies. It's an amazing thing to think about it this way. But for God's true people, Do we like God's judgment of the wicked? Well, yeah. They're the enemy. They're the people that persecute us and that turn people away from the Lord. And so a blessing to his people is that he brings all the nations down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat means Jehovah judges. And he enters into judgment with them. They're looking for the middle of verse 2 on behalf of my people. Because look at what they've done to my people. They scattered them. They divided their land. They they trade. They they basically sold my people as slaves, uh, cheap. You know, they they just sort of viewed my people as as loot to to be marketed. You know, and so God is going to judge them. Uh, he's going to give a recompense on their head. They took his silver and gold in verse five. Brought them in the temple. Their temples. They sold the sons of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks. And so God is going to put the recompense on them. That is, God's going to pay them back for the terrible things that they did. God's going to give them a taste of their own medicine. Because in verse 8, he will sell your sons and your daughters into the hands of the Sabaeans to a distant nation. For the Lord has spoken to so he's going to he's going to reverse this 
and now they get sold, they get punished. So this is the punishment of the enemies of God's people. Comments and questions. Does that make sense? You see the idea God blesses his people and he punishes their enemies. Okay? 9 to 12. We're still in this context, but now you see what he tells these nations. <clears throat> Proclaiming this among the nations, prepare for war. Wake up the mighty men, let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Be your plowshares into swords, and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am strong, assemble and come, all in nations, and gather together all around, because your mighty ones to go cause your mighty ones to go down there, O Lord. Let the nations be awakened and come up to the valley of Josephat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Okay. What's he telling the nations to do? Bring it on. Yes, bring it on. I like that. That's exactly right. Not exactly what you'd expect him to tell the nations to do. You know, what uh, if you want to be successful in battle, how would you like to find the enemy? Unprepared. Unprepared, absolutely. Sneak attack, surprise attack. I mean, do you ever hear, you know, the dialogue that goes on? I mean, you know, do, do you, you sort of expect, like, if, if a war is going to be going to be fought, you know, in the days before the war, the guy that's going to launch the attack is saying nice, sweet things about the enemy. You know, trying to throw them off the trail. You know, and then just suddenly out of the blue, they invade. You know, because you want to catch them unprepared. Well, that's not how God does it when he fights a battle. He says, look guys, to the nations, to the enemy, prepare a war. Get your mighty man, man all woken up and, and ready. You know, have them come and get weapons. You know, get all your agricultural implements and turn into weapons. Make your plowshares, swords, make your pruning hook spears. You know, get the weak all more, with morale and, and get them to join the battle. You know, bring the, the surrounding nations to, bring them all down. Now, why would God do such a foolish thing? If you beat somebody at their best, it just makes them that much more hurt. Yes. Yeah. What does it tell you about God? Uh, yeah. I was going to say, also, if they're bringing their weak and the other nations more, then that's more people for him to destroy. That's exactly right. It's sort of like how you do, you know, if maybe you, you were, you were going to, you know, fight a little kid. You know, you'd probably just kind of do that, like, play with him. But, but you know, like, you'd say, all right, come on, you need to get really strong, you know, really gear up for this, and, and you know, all that. Because, you know, it doesn't make any difference. You know, you could kind of play with them in that. You know, usually do that playfully. Hopefully we're not, you know, literally trying to fight little kids. But, uh, <laughs> but with the Lord, I mean, these guys are nothing. You know, he, he's, not, he's not worried about them. Let them do it all. Let them, let them get as prepared as they want to be. And he is kind of saying this in a way to almost talk. You know, come on, come on. You know, put up your dukes and fight like a man. 
is bring him down to the valley of Josephus, the valley where God judges. And wow, he will judge. Comments and questions? All right, 13 to 17. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and moon grow dark, and the stars lose their brightness. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth tremble. But the Lord is a refuge for his people and a stronghold to the sons of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. So Jerusalem will be holy, and strangers will pass through it no more. Wow. Verse uh, verse 13, the Lord uh, goes from being a warrior to being a farmer. What's he doing? Harvesting. Harvesting. Now, why is he harvesting? It's time. It's time. It's time. What does the harvesting mean? Your destruction. Yes, because when you when a harvest... You know, if you think about the grain harvest, as I think he probably is in the first phrase of verse 13, they would harvest, say, the wheat. And what would they what would they bring the wheat? To a what? Threshing floor. Threshing floor. And what would they do with it on the threshing floor? They beat it, usually sometimes with what? Yeah, or I think about oxen. They have them stomp around on the wheat, what are they trying to do? Yeah, rub the grain, those kernels, away from the chaff, away from the straw that they're on. Then what do they do? How does that work? Put, the, put all the stuff into a, a large flat basket you toss it in the air, and the breeze will take away the lighter elements. The grain falls down. If you do that a few times, you're like the grain and chaff goes away. Yeah, that's the idea. You can even just do it. Sometimes they'd have like a kind of like a scoop shovel kind of a thing. They just you know get it and throw it up in the air when there's a breeze, and you know that heavy, dense kernels are going to fall right back down. But that light, you know, straw, it'll just blow away. And then what would they do with the straw? that blew. They'd rake it up and burn it, and the grain they'd take into the uh, you know, silo or whatever. So, it's a perfect image for judgment. God takes the chaff, gathers it up and burns it, and he brings the grain for himself. So, this is a judgment image. That's what God's going to do. Or he has come tread for the wine presses full. So, you've got the grape harvest, and what did, what did they bring the grains when they harvested them? They put them in a, like a stone bed, and then they stomped them with the feet. Yes. Yeah, they called it a wine press, but it was like a, a, a vat, uh, a tank that they put it in, and then they trample on it. And, of course, trampling on the grapes would do what? Squeeze the juice out. And they they siphon off the juice, and what does grape juice look like? 
blood. So it's a perfect image of judgment. Uh, so you've got the grain harvest and the treading out the wine press together in this passage as images of God's judgment. The vats overflow for their wickedness is great. There's going to be a lot of juice. There's going to be a lot of blood. You know, because they are coming down to the valley of decision. Now, people sometimes misunderstand that. I don't think he's talking here about the peoples that come to the valley are going to make a decision. Who's going to make the decision? God. This is God's decision. Somebody has nicknamed this verdict valley. That's the idea. God brings the verdict on these people. And it's bad. The sun, the moon grow dark. The stars grow dark. The Lord roars from Jerusalem. For those who are against his people, God's going to carry out the sentence against them because of their war crimes. But for his people, he's a refuge, a stronghold, and he blesses his people. You know, God's got the twofold nature. He's able to bless. He's able to punish. All right, comments and questions through verse 17. Well, I mean, I, I forget, some of the science mentioned before, but I figure what the question for is, like, I mean, is this like a barn type? Yeah. Barn? They were big kind of tanks, I guess. I don't know. Or even just a floor itself. I don't know if they always had sides. Oh, okay. Anybody know more about threshing floors? The threshing floor would not have high sides because the oxen would have to come in and they'd go around in a circle. But, like, the wine press... Yeah. Based on my extensive research of Ila Lucy videos, that's what I was thinking. That's the that's the wine press where it's about you know waist high or so, and you put all of the, the grapes in and you walk around in that, and the wine is the, the juice that comes out the bottom, and that's where the liquid goes. Yeah, you throw the grapes at the other workers. <laughs> that's the only thing I know about the back. Yeah, that's good, though. I cite oh, that a lot of times. If you've seen that, then you have a picture of it. Yeah. yeah. So I, I guess, what does threshing in the word mean? I mean threshing I would be like separating the wheat from the chaff. That's what I've assumed. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we, we do it a little more sophisticated these days. Shake. Yeah, I just can't help it. Egypt will become a waste, and Edom will become a desolate wilderness. 
because of the violence done to the sons of Judah, in whose land they have shed innocent blood. But Judah will be inhabited forever in Jerusalem for all generations. And I will avenge their blood, which I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells inside. Wow, just such a blessing for God's people. Mountains dripping with sweet wine. The hills flowing with milk. The brooks and the springs flowing with water. Abundance and making up for the drought. A reversal of the locust plague. For those who respond to God's warning, there's just an abundance. There's richness. There's fullness. You see that idea of fullness. Uh, even in, in several New Testament passages. That that's how it kind of describes the blessing God gives. You know, in Ephesians chapter uh, 3, for example, in verse 19. And to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Here's the, the fullness of the blessings God is giving. But look at the enemies. Egypt and Edom are really good symbols of disobedient enemy peoples. Obviously Egypt, because we remember Egypt for what? The slavery, the oppression. And Edom we remember for what? Betrayal. Yes, betrayal. Constant enmity against Israel, which really was their cousin nation, since the Edomites were descended from Esau. Esau, yeah. So Egypt and Edom are good symbols of the wicked. And Egypt's a waste. Edom's a desolate wilderness. They're they're just, they're they're devastating. Um, Because? Of what they did to Judah? Yes! Of, Of the victimization of God's people, the violence done to the sons of Judah, the innocent blood they shed. And so God reverses the picture. The enemies had been dominating God's people, now they're a wilderness, and Judah and Jerusalem will be inhabited forever, and I will avenge their blood. You know, God is going to see to it that those who are wicked will get what's coming to them. You know, sometimes we get frustrated because wicked people seem to have the upper hand because they seem to get by with it. That's not going to happen long term. God, the blood that's, that's wrongfully shed will be avenged. For the Lord dwells in Zion. The Lord is among his people. Might be a good question to ask. The Lord dwells in Zion. Where do you live? You know, if we live in Zion, then the Lord is among us and he will be with us and bless us. So it's a really triumphal conclusion to this book. Comments and questions? You not only see that idea of blessing, you see that blessing in abundance. You just milk and water flowing, just fresh, sweet wine. Just that picture of abundance is made. There you gotta be a blessing. So we are blessed Amen. You brought up Ephesians 3.19. Well, with this idea, I mean, it goes on to say verse 20. Now unto him that is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that worketh in us. 
then God is so powerful. He can give us any victory. He can give us any triumph beyond what we could even conceive. But what I see in the book of Joel is God's purpose wins out. God is a triumphant one. This was His will. And you can so evidently see that God's will is the best interest of His people. In His selflessness in God. I mean, God's the most powerful being beyond our comprehension. Could do whatever He wants. And what He wants is the best for His people. That's amazing. Sarah? Just a, a psalm that always comes to mind when I think about Zion's dwelling place. The last part of Psalm 132, 13-18. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his habitation. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provision. I will satisfy her needy with bread. Her priests also I will clothe with salvation, and her godly ones will sing aloud for joy. There I will cause the horn of David to spring forth. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but upon himself his crown shall shine. Very good. Other comments? study a book like Joel, perhaps not one we uh, study as often as we should, but hopefully that 